Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. If you are tired coming into this evening, uh, the content probably will awaken you as we consider corporal punishment, Levite, marriage, um, what happens when it comes to the situation when, when a woman grabs a man's genitalia, um, uh, bags or uh, different scales, heavy and light, and then the destruction of the Amalekites. So a lot of things we have to get through this evening. We still will look at the entire chapter. How does it all fit together? I really don't know that I have any idea, but the commentators helped me, I think. So uh, hopefully we'll seek to understand what God is teaching uh, or saying to the Israelites and how that, uh, what he's teaching us as well. Remember, God still speaks in his word and he's speaking to us now. So we'll read the entire chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 25. We'll begin reading at verse one. <clears throat> if there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be. If the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name uh, to the name of his dead brother, uh, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. If two men fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him, and puts her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall not pity her. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear, and when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Amen. Well, we're coming to the ends of the stipulations in the book of Deuteronomy. Still quite a lot of runway left as we consider the document clause and the blessings and curses. Uh, but we're coming to the end of the major section of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, it's structured like a covenant. Uh, it is the preamble uh, for the God uh, enters into a covenant with Israel. Historical prologue. 
how uh, the, the relationship, the history between the two parties of the covenant, and then the stipulations, what each party must do. And Israel must keep the commandments God is giving here in Deuteronomy in order to have a good life in the land. It's all about life in the promised land. God is bringing them to the land that he promised to Abraham's descendants, and the people must retain the land uh, by covenant keeping. They must keep the Ten Commandments and how that is fleshed out uh, for Israel as a body politic, as a theocratic uh, nation. And so tonight we're going to see perhaps some connection between the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments. Perhaps there was some connection with the Ninth Commandment last time. Although there is a lot of overlap with a lot of the different commandments. You know, Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. But Ninth Commandment, you shall not lie uh, when you steal from people as well. So certainly there is a lot of overlap uh, with all the commandments. But tonight perhaps has uh, the Ninth and the Tenth in view here. And really perhaps the overarching theme of Deuteronomy 25 is the theme of dignity. Dignity and punishment, dignity and family, and dignity towards other people. We must not be merciless. We must not be cruel. We must not despise uh, image bearers, because that's a problem that seems to be in view in this chapter, despising human dignity, because there is the created reality. God made man in his image and thus is to be treated with dignity. You see, there, is, there ought to be the fear of God that's different than the fear of the Lord. There ought to be the fear of God in the land. And what that means is there ought to be right treatment of image bearers based on God's law written on the heart and observed in nature. The fear of God is different than the fear of the Lord. The fear of God ought to be upon all mankind that they might treat fellow mankind with dignity and respect. So there is that created reality. Man is made in God's image. But there is also the sin reality as well. After Adam fell, he brought sin into this world. And so the reality is man does not treat image bearers with dignity. There's hatred. There is cruelty in this world. And that really is a clear evidence of the total depravity of man. And so in a fallen world, in a sinful world, in a world filled with, with, with wicked men where there is no fear of God, uh, uh, in society that has these problems, there ought to be laws in place for protection. Laws in place that protect the, the, the innocent and punish the guilty in light of the fact that man is sinful. And certainly we see that here in Deuteronomy uh, with what God has to say uh, to the people of Israel uh, with these laws in Deuteronomy 25. So in Deuteronomy 25, Moses outlines laws that ensure the protection of human dignity. Again, it seems like a ragtag bunch of laws all put together, but perhaps that's the key theme that runs through all of these laws. It is the protection of human dignity. And so we're going to look at this under three headings. I don't know how it all fits together, but I think three, we still have to structure it in some way. Uh, so we'll do three headings this evening. First of all, a dignified punishment, verses 1 through 4. Secondly, a dignified family, verses 5 through 12. Then lastly, a dignified people, verses 13 through 19. So a dignified punishment, a dignified family, and a dignified people. Honorable people. Honorable punishment. A punishment, a family, and a people that have integrity. So let's first look at a dignified punishment in verses one through four. And this is where all the woke tards go nuts because we're going to deal with corporal punishment in verses one through three. And if as we deal with corporal punishment, how is it 
that we can uh, talk about punishment in a honorable type of way. Well, let's look at uh, what the law says. So this is a general procedure for corporal punishment. There are civil laws that God gives to Israel for the benefit and blessing of the society. There ought to, there ought to be enforcement as well, which includes rendering the right verdict, but also proper punishment. And so we've seen different types of punishment. There's capital punishment, there's restitution, there's uh, uh, repayment, and there's also slavery. But another legitimate form of punishment uh, for Israel is this form of corporal punishment. And we must remember the civil magistrate is God's avenger. The civil, ma uh, the civil magistrate is God's minister. Vengeance is not ours, says the Lord, but God has raised up his minister to be the one who brings about vengeance. Now, I'm not against self-defense. I'm all for self-defense, but I'm not for retaliation. Uh, so self-defense is perfectly legit. Uh, but if somehow we're not there to defend ourselves or defend our family, uh, retaliation ought not to be the proper course. We ought to leave it up to God and trust in him. Now, with that said, with the current law system, I'd almost rather be there for self-defense. But in any case, if I'm not, we have to just leave it up to God uh, with that system. But in any case, we have this proper, situ uh, proper procedure when it comes to corporal punishment. Notice in verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be. So there is a proper trial involved. It's not a show trial. It's not mob rule. There are just, ought to be just judges, which we saw in Deuteronomy 17. So there's a proper trial involved. And notice he comes to a right verdict. One was in the wrong. One was the guilty party. One was the innocent party. And so then he talks about then what the, the punishment ought to be for the innocent part or the sorry, the, the guilty party. Verse two, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, corporal smacking, uh, rod whipping or not whipping, but rod beating uh, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Notice, there needs to be supervision. The judge needs to be present when the, the, you know, the man who is tasked with doing the beating doesn't go above and beyond what that beating was going to be. The judge needs to be there as a witness. So there must be a supervision. But also notice it must be proportionate. Notice what the words of the Bible says and be beat in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. And he's going to go on to unpack the reason why here. But again, this is the, the lex talionis. The punishment fits the crime. The punish, punishment must be proportionate with what that crime is. It cannot be more than, and it ought not to be less than. And so the same is true with corporal punishment here. There is still dignity involved when it comes to a man receiving his lashes for the, for, the, uh, for the sin that he committed and for the wrong that he has done. He must bear the responsibility of it, but that ought not to exceed what he deserves. And so he says, verse 30, there's a limit. 40 blows he may give him and no more. So there's a proper trial. There's supervision. It is proportionate. And there is a limit. And all this is meant to do is to protect the dignity of the one being punished. The one being punished is still made in the image of God. 
I know that's hard for us to understand. And the reason that this law is put in place is because when we are wronged, when someone's anger is boiling, they're perhaps prone to go above and beyond what that one deserves. And so even the one who did something wrong ought to still be protected and ought to receive the proportionate punishment to what he has done. It must not exceed or be less than what he deserves. There must be truth in the verdict, but there must also be righteousness in the punishment as well. And so he says that very clearly, the reason being, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother, and your brother, he is a fellow Israelite, even though you might hate him in that moment, that doesn't change the fact he is a fellow Israelite. So A, he's your brother, and B, lest he be humiliated in your sight. When we feel wronged, when we feel anger, don't you just want to humiliate the person who wronged you? Don't you just want to make them look bad? Don't you just want to tear them down even more than they tore you down? You see, we actually love vengeance. We may not do that on a civil scale, but perhaps we do that on familial scales. Perhaps we do that with friends. Perhaps we do that with people we don't like. The reality is we ought not to. We ought not to engage in this retaliatory type of response uh, uh, in certain situations. But it's certainly in a civil sphere, it ought not to be done that way. And the one who receives the punishment ought to still be treated with dignity. Lest your brother be humiliated in your sight. This is the lex talionis. This is eye for an eye meant to be used in a civil judicial sense where the punishment ought to fit the crime. So corporal punishment uh, ought to be done in Israel, and it was, uh, was meant to be done uh, in a protected way in order to treat the one who was beaten or the one who was punished and beaten uh, with dignity and respect. So that's corporal punishment. I'll draw out some application in just a moment from that. But notice verse four. Uh, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So what does this have to do with beating somebody? I don't necessarily know, but it definitely follows the same trajectory uh, of the whole theme of the section about human dignity. And perhaps the idea is if you treat your animal with dignity, you ought to treat humans with dignity, right? That's like reverse today, isn't it? I mean, people want to save the dolphins, but they're fine with murdering babies in the root with the womb. I mean, it's this reversal of the created order. I mean, that's what happened with the fall, right? I mean, it was man over the woman, not that they were not equal in you know creation, but man was the head, the woman was his helper, and they were they were over the animals. What happened in creation? The serpent over the woman, over the man. I mean, we still see that today, don't we? We still see those problems today. As I said, we care more about the dolphins than we do about babies being murdered. Not we, but society in general. than babies being murdered in the womb. And so what are you saying here? Certainly, while an ox is uh, treading out the grain, usually what they'd have is they have two oxes and they have this sledge that they would carry and they'd lop off the, the wheat. And so what he's saying is if the ox is working hard, let them grab a few that fall to the ground is similar to the gleaning principle that we just saw in 24 with, with the poor. With the poor, you know, they were supposed to leave the sheep. You were supposed to leave uh, the boughs from the olive trees. You're supposed to leave the grapes from the vineyard. For the poor, well, the same thing applies to your animals. 
The animals are not meant to be treated with cruelty. You ought to, you know, not, not to muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. And so the overarching purpose is then to argue from the lesser to the greater. If the, uh, the ox ought to treat the tree with dignity and respect, how much more human beings? And this seems to be the logic of what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy, 9, or 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is saying, if an ox can eat, how much more should the pastor be paid? I know this sounds self-serving, but the point of both of those sections is that you pay your pastor. He who is worthy of double honor, pay him. You know, as the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain, and uh, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9, he's defending, do we not have that right? Do we not have the ability? And as a preacher of the gospel, shall I not be paid? This is where he then goes in to say, I cannot but preach. And what that means is in that section is that he is, as a preacher of the gospel, chosen by God and ordained by God and affirmed by the church. What he's saying there is, yeah, we ought to be paid, but I cannot but preach. And if I'm not paid, I cannot but preach. That's the section. That's what he's talking about there. But as he talks about uh, the, the, the rights of, of those who preach the gospel, they ought to receive based on the work they do engage in. So that sounds self-serving, but it definitely is in the Bible, 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Corinthians 9. So that seems, that's the application. Drawing from Deuteronomy 25 to the New Testament uh, context, arguing from the lesser to the greater, but even then with the lesser, Allow your ox to eat some food while it treads the grain. Now, I don't know that, I don't know anybody here that has an ox, but uh, the point is people deserve to be paid. People deserve to glean. And if one works hard, they ought to be paid. So food for animals, treating the animals with dignity and respect, treating the poor with dignity and respect, treating the one who is beaten with dignity and respect. Now, I'm going to draw an application with respect to corporal punishment and its place in civil society this is where north america goes haywire because we don't really have corporal punishment anymore do we in our in our legal system and you know i remember many years ago pastor butler asked me this question he's like or asked in the bible study this question what form of punishment is not mentioned in deuteronomy incarceration I mean, prison is the one that we typically lean upon these days, right? That's the primary form of punishment. Now, I'm not going to march upon Victoria or Ottawa and say, hey, bring back corporal punishment, get rid of the prison system. But perhaps things, you know, when we consider the, the general equity of the law behind these commandments, maybe perhaps we ought to stop and consider whether or not the prison system actually works. I mean, think about it. When it comes to that one inmate, you know how much we pay annually? I checked today. You know how much we pay annually, according to 2018, in taxes, taxpayer dollars? $125,000 per year for one inmate. Is that really the punishment fitting the crime? And think about it as well. When someone receives their verdicts, if they actually do receive a verdict, I mean, a lot of people are being, being let off scot-free these days, but if they actually do receive their verdict, I mean, they're, they're, you know, the rest of their life is tainted. 
I almost would prefer perhaps I not, I'm not <laughs> saying I would prefer, I'm not calling for abuse or anything like that, but perhaps you receive your beating for what you deserve. And then you go back into society and you would be thinking twice <laughs> as you went back into society with that, you know, the lashes on your back for what you did and rightfully so. So there is perhaps a place for corporal punishment and corporal punishment is present in other parts of the world. And other parts of the world find it shocking that we don't have corporal punishment in this part of the world. I remember talking to someone about the idea of caning. You know, I'm not, again, I'm not calling for abuse here, by the way. What I'm saying is and talking about is that perhaps there is a place and the reason there is corporal punishment is so people stop and think. Now, I'm not saying I want to go to prison. I'm not saying that. But there is a purpose for a lot of the things we've seen in Deuteronomy. All Israel was meant to see, even with capital punishment. The people were meant to come and watch and see. In Canada, children would come to hangings. You know, before, you know many moons ago, they would come and see and watch. It would be like a family outing. Why is that? So that people would stop and think. That would happen to me. That's the purpose or ought to be one of the purposes of punishment is that people stop and consider. I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to do that thing that happened there. I don't want to do this thing. And perhaps corporal punishment actually could be more dignifying. You don't have a criminal record. You get your lashes and you go out into the rest of society. But you're going to think about it. If you want to do that thing again for which you received those lashes, you'll remember those lashes. So again, I want to caveat and qualify. I'm not calling for abuse. Obviously, these things can be greatly abused. I fully understand that. But the point is, perhaps there is a place for corporal and certainly capital punishment. And really, too, when you consider what's being said in 25, I mean, we ought to appreciate the laws there and the general equity, human dignity, human protection. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the cap of capital punishment. In Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For man was made in the image of God. And one who takes the life of an image bearer must, through due process, through you know the proper avenue, proper legal system, that ought to be a punishment for those who do so. Wright says it is, a, it is sad that in the popular perception of the Old Testament, it is so often vilified for the severity of its punishments. Whereas this law, with its careful imitations and its explicit protection of the rights and dignity of criminals, is overlooked. So there's actually a lot of dignity in the punishment we see in verses 1 through 4. So that's the dignified punishment. Let's then look secondly at the dignified family. Verses 5 through 12. Notice in verses 5 through 10, we have this Leverite marriage. Now, the Leverite marriage idea was older than this, but it becomes legal authority here in Deuteronomy 25. Does anybody know where it was used prior to this? Maybe I should tell you what Leverite marriage is first. As it says, verse 5, the brothers dwell together. One of them dies and has no son. So that's the situation. Brothers dwelling together in unity which is actually probably what Psalm 133 is, what's behind Psalm 133. And remember too, it's different than North America. 
you know, typically the ancient Near Eastern world and the, you know, the, the time of the, the Israelites, a lot of families lived together, extended families, paterfamilias, they had the big father and they had all everybody who lived under the father uh, that way, mainly because of money, mainly because of family, that sort of thing. Uh, that's hard for me because I love my family, but I just cannot live with them. I know I say that all the time. You probably think I don't like my family. I do, but, uh, but it's hard for us to think that way in North America. I know other parts of the world, it is not so hard to think of, but in North America, that's hard. So many family units living together, brothers dwelling together. One dies. He's got no son. Maybe he's got daughters, but he's got no son. Uh, and uh, notice the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. So Leverite marriage is when the brother comes and he helps perpetuate the line of his deceased brother. So where in the Old Testament prior to this did this happen? Judah, Judah's sons, that's right, in Genesis 38. And that's uh, really bad, everything that went wrong there. I mean, they did not want, the, the, the sons did not want to uh, uh, take the line for their elder brother. So there's a lot of problems there eventually with Judah. It's all messy, uh, but God is very good. Uh, and then where later on in the New Testament does something similar emerge? Ruth, that's right. Ruth with Boaz. Now it's a little bit different because Boaz is the kinsman. He's not. He's not the um, the, 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 the the in the, the. He's not part of the family that way. But he memory has to go and say, "I'll I'll take her. I'll marry her." And so he has to actually take uh, uh, receive the sandal, so to speak, from that kinsman redeemer. So yeah, Genesis thirty eight and Ruth chapter four. We see it is legalized here uh, with respect uh, to Deuteronomic law. It's also used in uh, the Gospels. Remember the Sadducees want to challenge Jesus. Well, one brother dies and another brother dies. Who will she be married to in heaven? Uh, Jesus highlights they're trying to challenge the doctrine of the resurrection. And Jesus says, well, marriage is no going to be giving or receiving in marriage there. Um, so that's the elaborate marriage. They're trying to catch him uh, with that. But in any case, in Deuteronomy 25, uh, so the husband's brother shall go into her shall take her at verse five, shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And notice the reasons why. It shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother. So it is for, to perpetuate the name. That's the purpose of Genesis 38, to perpetuate the name. That's the purpose of Ruth, to perpetuate the name. That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so notice the deceased, it also perhaps highlights too that uh, she would not marry outside the family, whereas the Bible says she wouldn't marry a strange man. That's pretty good advice in general, don't marry a strange man. Uh, but the point there is that one who is not part of the family. And so she wouldn't marry someone outside the family, and then the inheritance goes to that guy. And also she wouldn't be destitute as well, but then also the name would be carried on and might not be blotted out. Certainly covenant connection, seed is important, the advancement uh, of to perpetuate the name of the Lord to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's all important for Israel, especially when you consider Abraham. Uh, so that certainly is involved here, the perpetuating of the name and the seed uh, in Israel. So lest his name be blotted out. So good reasons uh, for the benefit of the family and for the benefit of somebody else. But... There might be the case where the man, the brother does not want to do that. So what happens if the brother does not want to do that? Verses 7 through 10. Now, it certainly is a law, but it's not one punished with the full legal force. 
Uh, sometimes the court of public opinion can and does play a role in society. And then we see this here. And what are some of the reasons a man wouldn't do this? Because he's selfish. This is where the 10th commandment comes in, covetousness. Why do we do things or not do things? Why do we covet? Why are we not content? Unfortunately, it's because we're selfish. I mean, that summarizes, I mean, the idolatry. I mean, the 10th commandment and the first commandment summarize, I mean, the commandments. Idolatry. I mean, we're wicked. We're terrible. We love ourselves. We don't love God. We love other things. We're not content with the life God has given to us. So it would be selfishness. And the reason being, it wouldn't be his heir. It wouldn't be his son. Yes, it would be his son, but it would not be his son. He's perpetuating the name of his brother. And so that's why there's selfishness involved here. That's why uh, someone would not want to do that. So we, you know, Israel was not meant to be selfish, but ought to consider their brother, really, uh, literally. Uh, and verse 7, so what happens if he does not want to? If the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. So the elders are going to try to talk some sense into him. There's still some procedure that goes on here. And so when then, so they go and talk. But what if the elder, uh, he doesn't listen to the elders? Verse, nine, uh, verse 8. Uh, then the elders shall speak to him. And cause speak to him, but if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, which is a symbol of renunciation. He's, you know, it's a sign that he's going to get rid of it. So he removes the sandal, they spit in his face. It's a shameful thing what he's doing. He's thinking of himself rather than his family. He's thinking of himself above others, and he's going to be shamed. By the, by the society around him. So they spit in his face and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And notice he, she's gonna be, he's going to be a byword in Israel. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. So if he does not listen and he does not uh, uh, engage in the law of Levite marriage, uh, he shall be shamed by the society. And the reason being is he's not perpetuating the seed of his brother. So that's the Levite marriage in verses 5 through 10. And then notice in verses 11 and 12, protection of male progeny in verses 11 and 12. So this is perhaps a rarer case. And it is one that is punished by corporal punishment as well, this time with lopping off of one's hand. Uh, that might seem harsh, but we'll hopefully explain why in just a second. But notice the situation. Two men fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband. So she wants to protect her husband. Perhaps she has a good motive involved here. And so she comes. She comes to help her husband uh, uh, from the hand of the one attacking him. And so what does she do? She puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. This is not sexual in nature, and the punishment is not going to be because of sexual immodesty. What she's probably trying to do here is to incapacitate her husband's attacker. She's trying to make sure he's not going to get up again. I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, we used to, you know, hit each other as friends in that, in that place for fun because we thought it was funny. I mean, do kids still do that these days? I mean, we'd have games where we do that sort of thing. 
The point is you'd laugh and see the guy incapacitated. I mean, that was the whole point of it, wasn't it? That's what she's trying to do here. She's trying to, not maybe for fun, but to incapacitate him. I mean, that's what she's doing here. So it is not sexual in nature, uh, but it is trying to make sure he doesn't get up again. And the full force of the punishment indicates that she was trying to damage him uh, in his private area, in his genitals. And so the key theme between this case and the preceding case is the perpetuation of the seed. And if man has damaged genitals, he cannot perpetuate the seed. That's why the punishment is so severe. Notice, then you shall cut off her hand and you shall not pity her. That seems harsh, doesn't it? But there's probably more involved here, as I said, with the idea of damaging him and perhaps having loss of virility to be able to have children. And so this is Lex Talionis. And again, it might seem harsh, harsh but again, contrary uh, to some of the laws that were present at this time and other times in the history of Israel from other nations. I mean, this is pretty tame. At least that's what commentators say. They didn't give any indication or any examples. But the Assyrians were known for their nastiness when it came to mutilations. And so again, in this rare case, so that the wife, when she goes to help her husband, make sure she doesn't hit the guy below the belt. So her hand shall be lopped, lopped off. And notice, your eye shall not pity her. Even if she has the right motive, the end does not justify the means. You shall not pity her in this. The effect was wretched. The effect was wicked. Yes, it was. Okay, great. She went to help her husband. But the effect was not good and should have no standing with the magistrate. Brethren, how often today do we measure people and measure policy, civil policy, by motive versus its effect? How often do we measure civil policy based on the intentions versus the actual results of those policies? We ought to measure policy based upon the result, not necessarily the motive. And we see that very clearly here with this one. She had the right motive to help her husband, but the way in which she did it was not right. And you sh I shall not pity her. The motive may be right, but the effect, uh, that it, uh, the, the result of what she did must still be taken seriously. And so that's probably the purpose of this uh, protection against male progeny in verses 11 and 12. And all this kind of teaches us, and I think we talked a little bit about last time, is the importance of family, certainly with Israel as the advancement of the heir who want the seed of Abraham to come, but also family as the bedrock of society. We talked about that last time, how family is the microcosm of society, the nuclear family. And it's, you know, it's the place where discipline is taught. It's the place where hopefully family or ought to be the place where discipline is taught. I mean, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. It also highlights the importance of cultivating the family. And even we saw this last time in Deuteronomy 24, families should not be exploited. Families are important. And, you know, families are also the way in which societies there's a lot of sociological studies, brethren. It's not wrong to look at sociological studies 
But the place primarily, not saying there aren't problems, not saying there aren't exceptions, but the place primarily are where, are where children flourish is when there's a married mother and father. And usually it's the same parents. That is the primary place where children flourish. The nuclear family is so very important. Uh, there's a good book, I think I've mentioned it before, Them Before Us. Uh, the lady talks about various statistics when it comes to uh, the importance of the nuclear family uh, in society. And, you know, the importance of the family is so much, is so very under attack today. I mean, what I'm saying today is countercultural. I mean, everything I'm saying, corporal punishment, and, you know, marriage and, you know, perpetuating this. I mean, that goes against everything that the, you know, the, the woke tards, I love that phrase, the woke tards have to say when it comes to the family, how the nuclear family is trying to be removed. It's being attacked from within and from without. I mean, parent, they want to challenge, hey, it's okay. You know, two dads can raise a child. Two moms can raise a child. Oh, there's this thing called co-parenting, right? Where Pete, not, no, not, uh, not only is it someone who gets someone else pregnant, but they're not married and they're not together, but even people just willingly wanting to have a baby, not for the purpose of any romantic thing, but to raise people that way, to raise children. It's two different people, no romantic relationship, no romantic connection, but they just want to raise their kids. I mean, this social experiment is not going to go well. I already know that. It's not going to go very well. And it's because, and it, and it really is undermines God's good gifts at creation. And you know what? Even before all that, there certainly is still the problem of family within. Our own selfishness, our own personal ambition, our own willingness to destroy the family for our own personal gain. That happens as well. And that's very sad. That's very difficult. That is, you know, hard for us to fathom that sort of thing. But, you know, family is important. Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. Raising children is hard. Raising children is difficult. But it is the way in which God, A, you know, gave us for for place for procreating and a place for nurturing and building up society with families. So we ought to remember that. We ought to remember not just in a, you know, advancing the seed in a gospel way uh, to the ends of the earth, like we're looking for the seed of Abraham, but also just generally for society in a natural law, general society type of context. There ought to be a dignified family, an honorable family. So that's a dignified family. Let's then look thirdly and finally at a dignified people. Verses 13 through 19. Notice in verses 13 through 16, we have the prohibition against unjust weights. Basically what he's talking about here is fair trade. There's parallel in Leviticus 19, but what he says here is, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. So the problem is of two weights. Perhaps the heavy weight was used for buying. I don't get all the physics involved here, but the heavy weight was used for buying. And you typically, when you bought with the larger one, you could buy more than you paid for with that heavier weight. And the lighter weight was used for selling so that you give less than you agreed. Uh, so they were trying to cheat. They were trying to defraud somebody. They were trying to take from people uh in this way this is how i view inflation 
<laughs> I'm sorry to say it that way, but inflation is just a secret tax, right? I mean, that's what one econ economist said. And then there's shadow inflation where you pay the same amount, but the bottle's less, or you pay the same amount, but there's less chips in the bag. I mean, that's not fair, you know, to buy things that way. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, that maybe I'm projecting here, but I definitely do think that that is defrauding and unfair trade, but Again, I'm not going to march on Rome and I'm still going to pay my taxes. But in any case, we ought to, or Rome, march upon uh, on, on Ottawa. Uh, but in any case, we, there still ought to be just and fair trade. You shall have, verse 15, a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened. So you have one. Everyone has the right to be treated fairly. And notice the covenantal reasons. Remember, this is a theocracy. This is not... Uh, like Canada, you know, you and I, we live in a, you know, a federation, uh, a democracy. We are not a theocracy. Israel was a theocracy. There is a covenantal feature involved here uh, with them. And it's, and he said, uh, and so there is this, you prolong your days. That is, if you do what's right, even in this minor, what seemingly small thing, uh, maybe not that seemingly small, when it comes to the eighth commandment, you shall, you know, not defraud. Or the ninth commandment, you shall not lie. The tenth, uh, you shall not lie. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet. And the reason you do this is because you covet and you want more. But if you do all those, if you do all those things, your days are not going to be prolonged in the land. And so, if you want to have your days prolonged in the land, treat people fairly, that your days may, may be prolonged in the land for which your God, the Lord your God, is giving to you. God has given you this place as a gift. God has given you this place as a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't abuse it. God has been gracious. How egregious is it when God is so gracious and yet we're so terrible? Here's what you get, Israel. You have this wonderful flowing place. You keep these things, do these laws, but yet they still fail miserably in this area. And it is an abomination, verse 16. For all who do such things, who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. I mean, he puts that on par with idolatry. He puts us on par with necromancy and witchcraft. We saw this last time he, uh, when he talked about uh, when the husband and the, 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 the situation with divorce and remarriage, when he talked about the, the husband taking or going back to his first wife after he got rid of her because he wants her the dowry. And, you know, he called that an abomination. I mean, violating the Eighth Commandment is an abomination, right? Violating the Ninth Commandment is an abomination. And violating the Tenth Commandment is an abomination. I know we think for sure the Seventh Commandment definitely is an abomination. Absolutely. I know definitely we think witchcraft is an abomination. But do we ever think, like, cognitively? Like, I know we think, I know we believe it. Yeah, you know, cheating people is an abomination. But it is an abomination, it is on the par with these terrible and awful things. Financial exploitation is just as terrible as idolatry, witchcraft, and child sacrifice. That's how serious this is. It is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, we know Israel's history, and they fail miserably. In fact, in Amos 8, on the way, the reasons Amos chastises the northern kingdom. Remember, he, Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom under the, during the divided kingdoms in Amos 8.
He says, verse 4, hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain? So they're not pondering God on the, Lord, on the festival and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat. Make the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Even sell the bad wheat. One of the sins that Israel committed was the treatment of the poor. And their treatment of the poor and just treatment to their fellow brother, uh, fellow Israelites in general with their unjust scales and falsifying what uh, they were buying and what they were selling. So God treats that very seriously and he treated it very seriously here and in Amos 8. So don't cheat people. Just, you know, don't have two weights. We ought not to defraud in this way. And then lastly. I have no idea why this is here, but removal of uh, the, the, the Amalekites, destruction of the Amalekites. Perhaps, again, with that thread of dignity, highlight what he's highlighting here is the removal of merciless men who don't care for the dignity of man at all. And Edom, or Amalek was a descendant of Edom, and we know how things went with Jacob and Esau, and we know how things go with Israel and Edom. And we know from Exodus 17, as it says in Deuteronomy 25, 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. Israel has just come out of the land of Egypt. They just had this daring rescue by God and a daring escape right away. They're attacked by the Amalekites. And this is where Moses has to hold his hands up. Otherwise, they're going to lose. And they hold his hands up. And that's when Joshua eventually routes them. And his hands begin to fall. And they, he holds his hands back. That's, that's the situation with the Amalekites there. And God says, I'm going to blot them out. And so why in the world is this here? Like I was scratching my head. Why is the Amalekite section here in Deuteronomy 26? So I think there are several reasons. One is this is an example of a merciless people. Who do not show, uh, treat people with dignity and respect, but they treat people with cruelty. Perhaps there is some connection with that. They came up out of the land of Egypt. There's the Amalekites. And now they're about to enter into the promised land. A reminder about the Amalekites. That could be involved here as well. And perhaps it highlights there's still going to be unfinished business when they go into Canaan. And so when they go into Canaan with Joshua, they take the land. They stop to engage in warfare. Uh, but there's unfinished business still to do. Or thirdly, or perhaps all are involved here, it's a lesson against cruelty for Israel. Israel must pay attention to what God is going to do and is going to do the, to the Amalekites that it might not happen to them. And notice the wickedness of the Amalekites. Hopefully that becomes clear as we go through, but I think that could be very well involved here. And so notice the cruelty of the Amalekites. They attacked the rear ranks, the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary. They kicked them when they were down. And the stragglers at the back were likely the elderly, the young, the infirm, and the pregnant. Defenseless. No one to, you know, certainly uh, no other uh, people who would have not been able to fight back. That's where they struck. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if you were to tell that even to someone who's not a believer, they would still think that's terrible. They would still think that's wicked. They would still think that's awful. The reason being is the law of God is still written on the heart of mankind. Wright says to attack such a defenseless people is a sign of extreme human callousness, which in turn is evidence of no fear of God. And it says that, and he did not fear God. And we see similar language in Genesis 20. Remember, you know, that situation where Abraham with Abimelech and he goes into the land, he's afraid he's gonna, they're going to look at Sarah and they're going to kill him and take Sarah. Well, that's when he's in the, the second of three times. Oh, no, it's just the second time. There's another time with Abimelech, but uh, with Isaac and Rebecca. But with Abraham, the second time with Abimelech in Genesis 20, he says, say you're my sister to Sarah. And then Abimelech doesn't touch her. And then God appears to Abimelech, don't touch her. And he doesn't touch her. And then Abraham says, I didn't realize the fear of God was in the land. You see, even Abimelech knew you don't take a man's wife. Like even Abimelech, who's a pagan, knew you did not take a man's wife. You see, the reality is there is natural law written on the heart. It does not save man. It just makes man more obligated before God. What I mean by that is the Ten Commandments are written on the heart before Sinai. And when you think about it for a moment, when you think about the Amalekites, by what law is God judging them? They were not given Sinai. They were not have the revelation of God like Israel, but they still had the law written on their heart. And they even too later on with the prophets, as the prophets engage in the oracles against nations, by what law does he judge them? The natural law written on the heart. You see, God created this world, created man in his image, endowed him and infused him with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, implanted the law on his heart. And even though sin came into this world, the image still remains. It's tainted, it's fallen, but it still remains. Natural law still remains, does it not? Now man, you know, interprets it improperly, that's why man can say, yeah, it's terrible. You shouldn't attack stragglers and the infirm and the elderly. I mean, people typically know that. You don't take candy from a baby. I mean, you don't do that. That's just a terrible thing to do. Why is that? Because of God's created order that he made with this world. And what he's going to say to them is the wicked, these ones shall be blotted out. And whether one has been given a lot Sinai, or whether one is like an Amalekite, God's justice remains. And God's justice is seen in the created order, and man is obligated to that justice. We need, and that's why we need salvation in Christ. But the Amalekites were still under God's just judgment for that. And notice, therefore, verse 19. When the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Now, the command to blot out the wicked will be forgotten. And you can see, you can see this in the history of Amalek. Uh, Amalek comes up again in 1 Samuel 15.1. That's when Saul does not kill King Agag. 
memory cells to hack into pieces and you can do that. Uh, eventually we do see rest with David in 2 Samuel 7, but the Amalekites still remain uh, until Hezekiah destroys them according to 1 Chronicles 4.43. But there is still what, uh, an Amalekite causing problems even into the exile. Haman's an Agagite. That is from King Agag, who is an Amalekite. And God destroys Haman there as well. God really does blot them out of remembrance from under heaven. And notice, you shall not forget. Now, the shall not forget could apply to the commands. Kill them. When you get to the land, make sure they're blotted out. Make sure they're taken out. Or it could apply to Israel as well. Don't forget who they were. And don't forget what they did. And don't be like them. You see, one of the key themes that runs throughout Deuteronomy is remembrance and the prohibition or the, and the prohibition of the opposite side of remembrance is not forgetting. Israel was supposed to remember all that God had done. Israel was supposed to remember God's mercy and grace towards them. That in the land, they would not grow, uh, that, that, that when they had all the abundance, they would not say it's because of what I did. They would not say it's because of what we did. They would not then go worship other gods. They would remember where it came from. That's why you see all these commands. Do not forget. And in fact, it's recalled in Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9 recalls Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Where God says, I'm going to blot them out. And Moses intercedes and God does not blot them out. But they forgot God right away. Deuteronomy 29, 19. When it comes to... Uh, 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 as they're engaging in covenant re renewal at Moab, he's talking about ones who will go the wrong way, one who will pursue after other gods. He says in Deuteronomy 19, 9, uh, 29, 19, and so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Then verse 20, the Lord would not spare him. For then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. The people ought to have feared that their names not be blotted out of heaven. Or the name in heaven ought to be blotted out here that their names are not blotted before God most high. That is a great fear and certainly one that would have fallen upon many in Israel for their forgetfulness of Yahweh most high. Now, I think the application from that latter section there, treat people with dignity and respect. <laughs> I mean, is that so hard? <laughs> so so I guess it is really hard, but like, I mean, you think about it, it's just like a simple command. Treat people with decency. And this is where the golden rule does apply. I mean, treat others as you would wish them to treat you, not how they actually treat you, right? That's come up a few times. Treat people kindly, treat people graciously, treat people with dignity and respect. And the reality is even when unbelievers say that, it is based on God's law written on the heart. They still have this sense of right. They, they get it wrong many of the time, but it is still there. And it's fleshed out here in a blessed way 
for Israel. It's scary and frightening, but it ought to appreciate what is going on in Deuteronomy 25. And as God's people who have been saved and redeemed and received good things, shall we not honor him by treating, first of all, our brethren with decency and respect, our families with decency and respect, and the world around us with decency and respect. I'm not saying you have to fold. I'm not saying you have to, you know, bow to, to, to falsehood. But still, when we deal with people, we have to still treat them with dignity and respect. Now, a lot of these applications certainly apply to us as the redeemed as we live in this fallen world. We must remember that when we talk about the civil laws uh, and the civil sphere, the, the the, the ethic really is justice. There ought to be punishing the guilty and protecting the innocent, right? That ought to be uh, what is seen in the common kingdom. But we also recognize that we are part of the redemptive kingdom as well. This is our kind of gospel kind of focus as we close here this evening. There have been times where we have not regarded God's image, right? Cruel, mean, hateful, harsh, terrible. And yet God has forgiven us in Christ, has he not? The one who is the image of the Father took on human flesh, and he is like us in every way. And as we will see on Sunday, he is the image of the invisible God, but also the firstborn of, of the new creation, the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead. That those who violated God's law, broke God's law, and treated image bearers terribly and sinfully there is mercy and forgiveness in him see the redemptive kingdom ethic if you will is one of forgiveness as we deal with our fellow brothers and sisters in christ as we deal with those around us even though we there might we might be waiting for a civil verdict to be rendered should we still not at least forgive the one who wronged us in that way wronged us in a difficult way as christ has forgiven us you see christ is gracious god is gracious that he even redeems sinners in this way and only in christ is there forgiveness and mercy for all of the sins that we have committed and those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life are redeemed are saved and we're seeing all those names come to saving faith in time and space and we'll see them and be with them in the new heavens and new earth and when christ comes back he'll manifest his mercy to those in that way in that favorable verdict when he comes again but he also he will also manifest his justice to those who have not believed and whose names were not written in the lamb's book of life God is righteous in both ways. He is righteous to forgive in the righteousness of the Son. He is righteous to punish forever those who do not believe in him. Revelation 20 highlights this very much for us, and I promise we'll be done very soon. Revelation 20, he says, it says, And when I saw, then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And those who are written in the book of life will believe, will believe on Christ and find mercy and forgiveness in him. He will manifest his mercy and he will manifest his justice on that day when he comes again. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, these are difficult passages for us to consider. We are thankful, O oh God, that you forgive people and show mercy to the merciless. Oh God, so often we see in history, so often we see in your word, we see men and women so undeserving of the mercy that you showed towards us by not giving us what we do deserve and by bestowing upon us grace that is immeasurable, that is unfathomable, that is ineffable toward us, oh God. For so often, even still in our remaining corruption, oh God, we, we despise the image bearers when we ought not to. We treat people poorly. We treat people rudely. We treat people harshly, oh God. May we not do this. Thank you, oh God, that there is mercy and forgiveness for all the commandments that we have violated from the first to the tenth, from our idolatrous nature to our, uh, our defrauding nature to our lying nature, oh God. Uh, but we thank you that there is forgiveness in the redemptive kingdom. But even as we walk, oh God, in your common kingdom, Help us to appreciate the general equity behind these laws. Help us to appreciate that you're the God of justice. Help us to appreciate uh, that you're the God who has put that rainbow in the sky as a sign, a sign that you will not judge the earth again until you come again to judge the living and the dead. And in that time, you shall preserve and you shall protect and you shall restrain. And so we ask, oh God, in Canada, that there would be the fear of God in the land once again, that you would restrain, that, that there would be a criminalization of abortion, that there would be right laws that punish the guilty and protect the innocent, that people might flourish in this place again. But most importantly, we pray that your gospel would flourish in this place. We pray that it would advance to the ends of the, of the country, to the ends of the earth, that sinners might find salvation and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, O oh God, for all that you've done. Thank you for your laws. Thank you for your, uh, that you are the creator. Thank you that you're with the, you are the redeemer. Be with us now as we go out into our various tasks and vocations as we await your return and help us to wait patiently. Help us to be ready, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.